So our scripture reading today comes from page 1030, if you're using the black Bibles that are provided for you. We are in the middle of Luke chapter 9, and Luke chapter 9 stands in a very similar place to uh, Matthew chapter 16 and Mark chapters 8 and 9 in that these three sections of Scripture, Matthew 16, Mark 8 and 9, Luke 9, all three of these are these hinge points in the gospel account. All three of these stand as sort of a turning point uh, of, of Jesus' of Jesus's ministry, where in all three they record for us, in the, in the same order, they record for us uh, Jesus asking his disciples, you know, who do the people say that I am? Now, but who do you say that I am? And Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. He is God's anointed one. And after that, Jesus immediately explains to them what the Christ has come to do. He has come uh, to suffer and to be, uh, to be abandoned and to be rejected uh, not by Rome and not by the world, but actually rejected by the religious leaders of his own people, the chief priests, the scribes, the teachers, and actually be handed over to be killed, but that on the third day he would rise. Uh, he then goes on to explain then what it looks like to follow him. In all three of the Gospels, these, this is the order in these sections. And he explains that following Jesus, therefore, looks like you also taking up your cross and following him. There's a cost to following Jesus. And then immediately, again, in all three, they go to the very next thing. And it even happened chronologically next. Uh, Matthew and Mark telling us six days later. Luke telling us about eight days later. And they tell us of the transfiguration of Jesus. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid And they, as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So as I said, the transfiguration is a part of all three of the what's called the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Gospels that contain very much the same uh, accounts and same uh, stories. The, the Gospel of John uh, has some overlap, but uh, tells us things from a, a slightly different perspective. Interestingly, John doesn't record literally the transfiguration, but isn't it interesting that even in our call to worship, John starts his uh, gospel writing almost uh, telling us of the transfiguration. We have seen His glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. Now, the thing is, the transfiguration, the, the, the announcement of who Jesus is, why He came, what it looks like to follow Him, and the transfiguration, uh, these shouldn't just be turning points or hinge points in the Gospels. But they should be significant hinge points in each of our lives. Like, who, like no, understanding who Jesus is, understanding why He came, understanding what it looks like then to follow Him, and then seeing a picture of who He is in the transfiguration, it ought to impact us as believers. The transfiguration uh, screams one thing pretty loudly. Jesus is God. It's the point of the transfiguration. Jesus is God. He is the Son of God, equal in power and glory to the Father. He is the chosen one who has been sent to accomplish our salvation for us. He is the one, all the, the one whom all the law and prophets point to and find their fulfillment in. The impact of who Jesus is, the impact of the transfiguration should affect our worship. Uh, It should should affect uh, how we understand Scripture. Uh, It should affect uh, the joy we have in our salvation. So we're going to look at uh, the transfiguration, not necessarily verse by verse, but How does the glory of Jesus unveiled, uh, how does that impact us? What does that mean for us? The glory of Jesus unveiled or the glory of Jesus uh, unrivaled or the glory of Jesus understood. And so first, we want to see that the glory of Jesus unveiled means that we must see Jesus as God. The glory of Jesus unveiled means that we must worship Jesus as God. So verse 28, again, about a week after the conversation they had about who Jesus is and why he came, Jesus takes three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he takes them up onto a mountain to pray. I think it's interesting. This I noticed uh, this week as I was reading and preparing just that uh, how many times. So first of all, Jesus and prayer is a big emphasis in Luke. Uh, Luke is constantly pointing out to us that Jesus prayed, that Jesus went away to pray, that he set aside time to pray. And I was struck by how many of those times, how many of like the significant moments in Jesus' ministry, Luke connects to praying. 
And so we're told that Jesus prayed at His baptism when the Holy Spirit is being poured out. We're told that Jesus was praying then. We're told that Jesus prayed the night before He selected His 12 disciples, His 12 apostles. We're told uh, last week that Jesus was praying. He was somewhere praying uh, privately when He asked the disciples who do they think that He is, that they confess that He's the Christ. And He begins explaining it for the first time what it means that He's the Christ, what He has come to do. Here uh, at the Transfiguration, Jesus is praying, and then the Transfiguration. At the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will be praying. And it struck me that, that part of this is because at every point, all of these significant next points were significant steps, one step closer to the cross. And I think, in one sense, Jesus in His humanity, each one of these next level-ups, if you will, just means that He's one step closer to dying on the cross. And so He would spend time in prayer before taking that next step. We're told here that while, while he was praying, in verse 29, his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. I love that every gospel writer struggles to find words to explain what is happening, uh, especially with his clothes. So, uh, Matthew says that his face shined like the sun and his clothes were as white as light. So his clothes were, were as white as light itself. Uh, Luke here, literally, he says uh, his clothes became as bright as flashes of lightning. And then Mark is a little more humorous. He says his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So his clothes were so white like, they were whiter than any launderer has ever been able to get my clothes. It's like, oh, okay. But uh, there's just, there's not, there's, it's almost like there's not enough language available to describe what the apostles are seeing. That, that here is Jesus in His unveiled glory. It's also interesting if you read through this over and over, you start noticing like all of the connections to uh, Exodus and Sinai especially, but uh, you know, Jesus has taken three people with him and has gone up onto the mountain. Uh, Moses took three with him and went up onto a mountain. Uh, there's clouds enveloping the scene in both cases. God speaks in both cases, uh, the appearance of Jesus is altered. And if you remember, every time Moses went up onto the mountain to speak with God, his appearance was altered. Um, on top of all that, uh, Luke uses, literally, he uses the word exodus to describe what Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about. In English, it's been translated uh, departure. But literally, it says, uh, they, they spoke to him in verse 31 about his exodus. But the thing is, the similarities actually serve to highlight the differences, because the differences are huge. 
When Moses glowed with the glory of God, he was reflecting or being illuminated from the outside, like the moon. You know, like the moon doesn't glow from the inside. The moon glows because it reflects the glory of the sun. That was Moses' experience. He, he glowed with radiance, but the radiance was foreign to him. It was God's radiance that Moses then reflected. But Jesus, Jesus was radiating from within the glory of God. He wasn't reflecting God's glory. He was God's glory. Uh, we're told that when the, when the disciples saw his glory, not the glory of God reflected in Jesus, but saw Jesus' glory. And so it's interesting, isn't it? Like Moses, like he would have to put a veil on to hide it. Like Moses reflects the glory. Jesus, he, he basically takes the veil off so you can see his glory. It's it's like the difference between Superman and Batman, or if you're an MCU fan, uh, the difference between uh, Thor and Iron Man. So Bruce Wayne, Tony Stark, when they have their street clothes on, that's who they are. That's not a disguise. That's them. That's the real them. That's the real person. Tony Stark in street clothes, Bruce Wayne in street clothes, Real, real guy. If they want to become superheroes, they have to put on from the outside a superhero suit. It's the suit, you know, it's the suit that makes the man. I think Tony Stark even says that. Uh, but Superman, that's not true. When you see Superman in street clothes, that's his disguise. Like he's, that's not who he is. Like Clark Kent is fake. Superman's the real thing. Underneath Clark Kent, he's the real deal. And then he, you know, he gets the, goes into the booth, t- rips it off. You know, uh, Thor in jeans and flannel, that's not the real Thor. Like he's, he's actually, you know, a god from wherever that was. Uh, Asgard. Thank you, Asgard. <laughs> so I almost said Odin. I was like, man, that's going to screw it up. And James will not be able to let go of that. So I'll just say wherever and he'll fix it. Thank you, James. Thank you. So, Asgard. But do you see the difference? Like, Moses is just Moses, but from the outside, when God, when God interacts with Moses, Moses receives God's glory in order, as a reflection of God's glory. Jesus is the glory of God. He is God. Every Christmas we sing it. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, hail, the incarnate deity. When, when Peter and the others wake up, they see his glory. They see Jesus for who he truly is. And if there's any doubt, the Father speaks and clears it up. He says, this is my son. This is the chosen one. Listen to him. When you catch a glimpse, when those moments come and you catch a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, you are filled with awe and wonder and a desire to worship. Understanding that Jesus is God should 
cause us to want to worship Him. And I don't mean should cause you to want to give up 75 minutes one day a week for some songs and some prayers and a lecture. I mean, it should be a part, like you should be worshiping this God with every, everything in you. How you approach work should be out of worship for this, this glorious God who saved you. How you approach your relationship with your spouse or with your children or with your parents. Is, it, you ought to be thinking like this. I, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. I should be worshiping him with everything that I do. When the glory of Jesus is unveiled, uh, we will see Jesus as God. Second, when the glory of Jesus is unrivaled. The glory of Jesus is unrivaled means that we must see Jesus in all of Scripture. The glory of Jesus unrivaled means we must see Jesus in Scripture. Why, Why Moses and Elijah? I mean, do you ever wonder that? Why these two? Please say you do. Like, like, come on. I mean, if you grew up in the church and the transfiguration, these are stories. These are Sunday school stories. And I mean, flannel graph does a great job with it all. And suddenly there's Moses and Elijah. Have you ever been curious? Have you ever thought, I wonder why those two? Was it a drawing? Was it a, was it a hat? Were they the first in line? Did they sleep out in front of the gates overnight so they could be the first two? Why did these two get to go down to speak with Jesus? We know what they came to speak with him over because Luke tells us they came to speak to Jesus about his departure, which was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This is in verse 31. In other words, they came to speak to Jesus about his crucifixion, about his death and resurrection and ascension, the departure that he was going to accomplish soon in Jerusalem, the deliverance that would come at the expense of not of the blood of the Pharaoh's son, but the deliverance of God's people that would come at the expense of his own blood, the blood of God's only begotten son. Uh, Moses and Elijah come to talk to Jesus about the sacrifice that he will make uh, for them, the sacrifice that he will make for all of the people that they we're called to lead and care for, the sacrifice that he would make for you and for me. Why Moses and Elijah? In a theological sense, it's Moses and Elijah because uh, some say that it's because they represent the law and the prophets. So Moses, who, uh, who brought, who was the, the, the pipe, the conduit of the law that God sent to his people. Elijah, who's uh, the called prophet uh, just at the edge of uh, the exile, a warning and calling his people to repentance and, uh, and to uh, returning to God. So, so think about this. There's Moses. What was Moses' calling? What was his job? It was he was called to lead a stubborn and disobedient people out of bondage, to the base of Mount Sinai for a covenant renewal, and then on into the promised land. He brought the law, but he also brought the sacrificial system, 
in order to provide a way of return when the people rebelled. This was the work that Moses did. What was it that Elijah did? What was his work? Elijah came to call a stubborn and disobedient people to repentance, to return to following the Lord and living under the covenant blessings of being God's children. He warned them of exile and disaster that would come should they continue in their disobedience. Well, why did Jesus come? Well, Jesus, in a sense, came to call a stubborn and disobedient people out of bondage and to repentance and to live in a new covenant that would be established not by the blood of bulls and rams, but by his own blood. He came to call us out of exile and into the kingdom of God that he would establish and that would last forever. And so we see in this sense that Jesus fulfills what Moses and Elijah came to try to call the people to. Jesus accomplishes what Moses and Elijah never could. I think there might be another reason, but this is just speculation. Obviously, it's all speculation. But uh, do you, did, you, did you know that like Moses and Elijah share something else in common? Um, God, during some of the darkest moments in their calling... God came down and met with them to encourage them. In Exodus 34, that's what we read for our call to worship. That is when, that is just after the people have completely uh, thrown off God. They've bowed and made, uh, they've made their golden calf. They've, they've celebrated to it. And Moses, God has told Moses, listen, I'm done. I'm so done. We're going to start over. We're going to start with you. And Moses uh, beautifully says, well, then how will the world know your God if you reject your people uh, like that? And it's just, it's a beautiful picture of, of intercession and mediation and but Moses is certainly a little undone and discouraged by it all. And, and he says, show me your glory. Do you remember God comes down? He says, well, all right. He says, I want to see your face. He said, well, you can't see my face, uh, but I'll put you in this rock and I'll cover you. When I walk by, uh, you'll be able to look out and see my backside. And when he walks by, he declares, the Lord, the Lord, uh, mighty to save, the one who uh, is filled with uh, compassion, who forgives thousands of their sin and transgression and iniquity, but will by no means hold him guiltless who continues in sin. But then also in, in Kings, Elijah. Elijah is almost the exact opposite. This is how, like, we can't say that, like, oh, well, Moses had, it was rough for Moses. Elijah has this moment of extreme uh, victory over God's enemies. Like, he, this is where he has gone up to the mountain and he's soaked the the, the, the sacrifice in water and the enemies, the, the false pr priests, they're all dancing around their, their uh, sacrifice. And he says, look, whoever, whosoever God lights the sacrifice for himself, that's who will worship. And do you remember, like, the, they're dancing around and Elijah, he's like, I mean, he is talking smack to them. And it's like, and it's, it's lost in the translation, but literally he says, hey, talk louder. Maybe he's in the John. Maybe your God is 
indisposed and you need to shout louder because the door is closed. And so they get into a frenzy, and then Elijah just, he prays, and, and they had soaked it with water and seven times built a trench, and, and he prays, and the, the fire comes down and lights the, the I mean, it's, it's just this glorious victory, and it's wonderful. But the king of Israel, his wife, uh, sends a message to Elijah and says, uh, the Lord take my life if you're alive tomorrow. And so... Elijah, he doesn't be like, he's not, it's, he's not like, oh, the, the God who just did all that? Yeah, I'm not afraid of you anymore. No, he grabs his tunic and runs for the hills. He's scared to death. And, and again, God comes to him and appears to him. And he says, you know, he sends the, the hurricane, but God wasn't in the hurricane. And he sends the, the, the storm and the clouds and God wasn't in the storm, but then this, this still wind and the whisper of God was in the wind. And he says, Elijah, what are you doing? God, as they were wondering about what it was that God was calling them to do, came down and spoke with them and encouraged them. And here are Moses and Elijah. God is on the earth. The, the table like the door has, the chapter, whatever, you're, whatever metaphor you're looking for, it has now turned. The end of chapter 9 in Luke will say specifically, from that point on, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus is on the road to die. And do you think that's not a slightly, humanly speaking, overwhelming task to be called to? And here come Elijah and Moses given the amazing gift of getting to encourage their Savior. How incredible. I think this is part of Peter's faux pas. He sees Elijah and Moses and Jesus and just assumes, hey, we've got the three big hitters here. We should do something. Hey, let's, uh, let's build a tent, one for each of you. Um, and it's, it's why, like, part of, I think, part of the, the directness of the Father's language. Hey, let's build a tent for each one of you. Uh, hey, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. It's not these three. It's not Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, the, the big three, the heavy hitters. No, Jesus is not the next Moses. He's greater than Moses. Jesus is not the next Elijah. He's greater than Elijah. The whole book of Hebrews is written to explain this, that Jesus is greater than every example that pointed us to our need for a Messiah in the Old Testament. Was there Adam? Jesus is the greater Adam. Was there Abraham? Jesus is the greater Abraham. Was there Moses, Aaron, even Melchizedek? Was there, were there the prophets? All of these, Jesus is the greater than all of these. These all, in fact, trusted that God would send a greater one than them. And their faith was not disappointed. This is what Jesus himself said to his disciples after his resurrection at the end of Luke. In Luke 24, verse 27, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. 
So Jesus points to Moses and the prophets and shows these show these all find their fulfillment in me. In Luke 24:44, it says, Everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. And again, we don't have to go to the end of Luke. We come back to what the Father says about Jesus. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. He is the chosen one, chosen before the foundations of the world to be your substitutionary sacrifice for your sin. Listen to him. Now, does this mean that when we come to scriptures, we should all go out and buy the red letter edition because the Father told us we just need to listen to Jesus. You don't need the, the old, I mean, he fulfills all of it. So just find the red letters and read those. No, no, that is not what's being said. What it means is that as you read scripture, any scripture, red letters or not, you're asking yourself these questions. Where does this point to the need for a Savior? Where does this find its fulfillment in Christ? Where does this leave us lacking as the answer to the story? Because Christ will be the better answer to that story. God's Son will fulfill all righteousness and will come as a sacrifice in our place. Yes, in one sense, Moses has a level of glory, but it's in that he reflects the glory of God. Elijah has a level of glory, just like you and I have a level of glory as followers of God, like there is a reflection of the glory of God. People ought to see Christ in us. They ought to see the love of God in us. But the glory of Jesus is unrivaled, even in all of Scripture. And so it should impact how we see and how we take in and how we understand Scripture. And then finally, the glory of Jesus understood means that you must receive Jesus as your Savior. Moses was never going to be able to be the substitute for Israel. Moses had his own sin. We, you see it in full display in, in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus in Numbers. Moses had his own Issues that he needed saving from. Elijah was never meant to be the prophet who would substitute for God's people. Elijah himself had his own issues, his doubts, his fears, his discouragements. And here is Jesus on the mountain, his, his glory unveiled for his three disciples to see. Elijah and Moses, two heavy hitters from the Old Testament, show up to talk. And what are they talking about? They're talking about his death and resurrection. The glory of Jesus is the cross. This is what the Father chose him to do. How insane that the Father sent the Son not as judge, not just as a prophet pointing us to, you better get right before you get left, but he sent him to be our Savior, to be the propitiation, the sacrifice of atonement that would satisfy the wrath of God. This is what the Father chose for Jesus. This is what the Father chose for the Son before the foundations of the earth. He was the only choice. He's the only one who could do it. 
You know, let's say, uh, let's say you, let's say I owe Bob $10,000. And uh, James already spoke today, so let's say James owes Bob $10,000. And we both somehow have been able to scrounge and save up $10,000. Now say I go to Bob and say, Bob, here's the $10,000 that James owes you. I want to pay for him. Now, is Bob going to take that? I mean, you might take the $10,000, but he's not looking at James's account. He's looking at my account. He's going to be like, okay, um, actually, you, you, Leonard, owe me $10,000. And so, I mean, we're not going to, you can't pay his debt. You have a debt to me. Now, $10,000, I know that's small because, like, some of you are like, oh, yeah, well, so then next week you'll, be just, you'll make another $10,000 and you can pay that. No, I mean, so, like, we'll make it a million dollars. Make it a billion dollars. Make it an unpayable debt that, like, you only have enough for one of you. He's not going to accept it for him. He's only going to accept it for you. You owe the debt. He doesn't owe the debt. Jesus paying your debt, Jesus sent God saying, he's the chosen one. I have chosen him to pay your debt. The only way he can do that is if he doesn't owe any of that debt already himself. The only way God accepts Jesus's payment is that Jesus didn't owe any of that. Jesus did not live a life of sin. He did not uh, sin and therefore earn the wages of death. He paid for our sin. Now, on top of that, let's say I was able to uh, not owe my own money, but then, you know, James owes a billion dollars, and so I come up with a billion dollars and pay for James. Well, that's great. And then other people hear about it, and they're like, well, I owe a billion dollars too, Leonard. Could you cover me too? And I would have to say, uh, no, in fact, I cannot. Uh, no, I don't. What do, you, what do you think I'm made out of money? Uh, this is, which is every dad's response at some point, even for soda. Uh, but so someone, so it's not enough that Jesus didn't sin and so he could cover one person's debt. The only way Jesus can cover the debt, not just of you and me, but of, of people from every tribe and language and people and nation is if he's more than just a sinless man from the first century. I mean, he has to be God. Only God could pay the debt for all who believe. Jesus is the sinless man, but he is also God's only begotten son. He is the substitute for your sin. And so that's why I say, like, that should affect you. Like, when, you, when we grasp that Jesus is God, like, what, what joy that should produce in us to realize that that God accomplished your salvation. If, if God accomplished your salvation, 
Do you think it's possible for you to undo that salvation? It's not. If, if God is for you, who, who could be against you? If God uh, didn't spare his own son, but, but graciously gave him up for us, how will he not, along with him, freely give you everything you need? Nothing can separate you from the love of God, from the love of the Father that he's shown you in Christ. Because Jesus, God's eternal Son, was chosen and appointed by God to be a sacrifice of atonement that would satisfy his wrath on your behalf. His wrath is satisfied. And so we worship him, we adore him, we see him and look for him in scripture, and we put our joy and our hope in Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of sinners. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for our salvation that you alone could accomplish. pray that you would fill our hearts with with worship and delight, that you would open our eyes to see the wonders of Christ and Him crucified, pointed to in all of Scripture. Fill us with joy and with comfort knowing all that you have done to save us from our sin. Let us look to Jesus, your Son, Father, chosen for us. May we listen to Him. In Jesus' name, amen.